Hey, good morning, everybody. Go ahead and make yourselves comfortable. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here at Legacy Church. I'm the teaching pastor. I'm glad to be here. Um, glad to look at the word with you today. And I, I changed the sermon and truncated it just a little bit because there's something I wanted to introduce to you today, something that I've actually already announced before the partners of Legacy, our, our members of Legacy, and that is that we are going to be moving soon. We won't be here for a lot longer, um, uh, maybe a handful of months, but as some of you, probably most of you already know, we're going to be moving to the north central area just north of downtown. It's an area of town that we've been wanting to be in for quite a while. In fact, way back in our days in Tampa Bay, um, when we envisioned coming here and planting this, we had a people in mind, not ever living in Knoxville. We didn't know quite where those people lived, but we knew where we would have the deepest ability to impact the city, and it would be around a certain kind of people. And the more we lived here and the more we traveled and got to know people, we realized that that is right in the center of Knoxville. So we started moving our way here to get as close as we could to the center of Knoxville, landing us here. And a great opportunity has come our way where we can secure a facility. Um, which is a big move, and so it's going to present a big challenge for us as a church, probably, I think, the biggest challenge we've had so far in our existence. Done a lot of research on this area, and we've started slowly migrating most of our outreach to this area. We're looking to move in North Central, 835 North Central, and if you were to draw a radius in a circle at a 2.5-mile radius, it gives you about just under 20 square miles there are 22 neighborhoods that are there. Can you believe that? Knoxville's a cool city in the fact that it's arranged in neighborhoods like boroughs or, or you know, precincts or something like that. It makes it real easy for a pastor or a church planter to look and to pray over a people, and it's going to make it easy for us as a people to pray for that part of the city as well. I mean, it's yeah, I, just the ones off the top of my head, UT, Lonsdale, Arlington Heights, Forth and Gill, Central, or just that central part of the city. There's about 100,000 people, just over 100,000 people that live and work there, right, if you count the college. And there is a high density of people, although there's a very, very low density of churches, right? As suburbs started popping up all around Knoxville, churches started moving out to where all the people lived, leaving what they call a reverse donut, where you have a vacuum in the middle. Not only that, a lot of the churches will start to die, in plateau. I was just telling some of the guys that I did a quick scan to look at 10 close churches, not the closest, but close ones to where we look to go. Out of those 10, nine of them didn't even have a website. And if you look at what they look like from Google Earth, you could tell really quickly, or if you drive by them, that they are in decline if they're not already gone. There is a hole there, yet there's a high density there. There's, there's a, a great ethnic mix there that we've always wanted. There's a lot of art there, a lot of young couples. There's, there's some beautiful aspects to that demographic that we feel like we could do a good job with as a church. So when we go to a facility in the north of Knoxville or just north of downtown, it's not the facility that's as much of a draw. Even though it's an incredible opportunity, it's the community that's a draw. The community is what's making the, the building beautiful, not the building being beautiful and then the neighborhood becomes tolerable. Does that make sense? So we're moving. We've known about this for quite a while, but we are working on the details of what a move like that looks like, how much it costs. And so we've been slowly releasing it. And this is where we're going to need your help because this is the first big 
challenge for us as a church. And the first thing I'm going to be asking you to do is be praying. Praying a lot for this part of the neighborhood and praying for our church as we make it through a transition like this. We're going to need a lot of prayer. Your typical church loses quite a bit of people whenever they make any kind of move. I'm believing God that as true as that's been even in our history, that's not going to be true in this next move, right? That's what I'm believing God for. I'm also asking you to pray and consider with your family what kind of help you can offer when it comes to your time and your talent. Sweat. What you can do to help. Can you put up a wall? Can you refurbish a floor? Do you know anything about anything when it comes to art, plumbing, electricity, anything? Anything that you can say, hey, this is something small, but I've done it a little bit, or this is something that I did way back in the day, or this is something that I do right now that if I put my hands to, I think I could be a help. I want you to pray about it. Don't just come up to me today and talk to me about it, all right? Not a good day for that. I want you to think about it. I want you to pray about it. Talk to your family about it because we're really going to ask everyone to step into this project and we're going to need a lot of help. Not just your talent and not just your time, which that will require, but also your treasure, right? In the history of this church, right, just barely over four years, I can think of one time, and I can't even tell you what it was for, where we've taken up a special offering. We've never done it. We've never done it. We've always been fortunate as a church to be able to afford any kind of endeavor that we want to do, but that's because we run on a very, very, very tight budget. We've never really approached the people of Legacy Church and say, we need everyone to dig deep and bleed for this. We need everyone to throw their weight into this. I'm going to ask you to pray and consider that with your family. And in the weeks to come, we'll talk about how all of this can take place as we put teams together and as we put finances together, what it can look like. And we're going to make it incredibly easy on everyone. No one's going to be confused. But one thing I would like to do starting today is before every single service, before every sermon, for the next six months plus, whatever it takes, we're going to look at one aspect of the area that we're moving into and we're going to pray as a church for it. Because I do believe that as you pray deeply for something, your heart just starts to follow after it. I know because we prayed for Knoxville for a year before we came. And when we got here, I was radically in love with this city, not even knowing a single person in it. Right? We're going to pray for this part of the city. Maybe by neighborhood, there's some good churches there. We're going to pray for some of these churches to be fruitful in their neighborhood. Some good pastors I'm bumping into that, that, that don't even believe the exact same thing we believe. We're going to pray. We're going to pray that they are fruitful that God blesses them, blesses their evangelism. Today I'd like to just start off by saying that there is a ministry that I think we can pray for as a church before we even jump into this sermon. Every Friday, me and my bride and our kids, we go to the Boys and Girls Club right there um, in the, the Haslam one, it's two blocks from where we're going as a church, right? And it's a beautiful situation where we just basically have free reign of the place, but we tutor those that are wait, I mean, they're like kindergarten, first grade. So when I say tutor, it's like, this is a rabbit and this is a fox. Let's trace the animal. And we're teaching them how to count. And we're teaching them how to do their alphabet. So on a bad day, you're, you're a brilliant genius in there, right? So, and they love you. And, he, and after two or three weeks, they, they're, they're hugging you. They're putting their arms around you. They're excited that you're there to, to invest. Even the staff, after three or four weeks, they can't believe that we are so consistent after like three or four weeks, you know? They just don't have a lot of help. They just don't have any help. So it's been good for us to be there. But one thing that I've noticed in the few weeks that we've been there, or really the few months that we've been there, is how desperate that neighborhood is for tutors and heavy voices. 
right? Not all the dads are crackheads. Not all the moms are horrible moms. Not all the families are even fractured. But there's something in that kid that is responding well to love shown. And I think we, we could do a lot as a church there, a lot. So I'd love to pray just today. And by the way, if you're interested in that ministry or you're not connected to a comm group or something, we'd love to get you involved in that if you want to be involved in the Boys and Girls Club. There's room for about 5,000 people there. I mean, there's no end, to, no end in sight for, for the need. They, they have a lot of need. So let me pray for you. We're going to pray for that. It's buried right up in that smear where Arlington Heights kind of touches Old North and is just over a couple blocks from maybe where the edge of Fourth and Gill is. It's a great neighborhood. It's a great facility with great people in it. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we're going to be talking about, Lord, every week as we as a church become a, a people not just radically in love with this city, God. We say every week, that we love Knoxville. We're a church that loves Knoxville, and that's true. But we're also a church that's going to go down fighting for one little chunk of Knoxville. Just center Knoxville. Just a center. Just a people that we can call our own. Our backyard. A place where we can drop an anchor and say, this is us. And with all the fighting, with all the coming, and the going, and the, and the, the turbulence that is a church that is growing, one thing that we will always have before us is we love and will die for this neighborhood. So help us, Lord, as we go home and as we pray about how, how we might be able to invest in the future, without even, even knowing any details, Lord, that you would quicken our hearts, that this wouldn't just be something that the leadership is excited about, but from the grassroots up, our church is radically excited about this. Only you can do that, God. Only you can do that. A sales pitch isn't going to do that, but you can do it. And Father, we pray for the Boys and Girls Club. We pray for that specific one, that you would continue to breathe your favor on that. You've given us such great favor. Our church, even Legacy Church, has great favor there. And it took us no time at all to get it. And I think that was your doing, Lord. I think you did that. Help us as we work with those kids. And we pray for the kids of that neighborhood, Lord, that you would make yourself obvious to them and beautiful to them even at a young age and that maybe we would get to be a part of that. Give us creativity and innovation and wisdom as we reach out to just that little niche of Center Knoxville, that little niche. Give us an ability to bless people and show you as magnificent and brilliant and majestic. Lord, help us. Help us be consistent. Help us be a presence, a weighty presence there. Lord, we just pray for your name and for your acclaim to be high. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Every week we're going to pray over something specific. We're going to make it specific. And we'll have graphics and we'll have things printed up and all the fancy stuff you're supposed to do. But I don't want to get lost in that. I want to focus on the fact that these are real people. People are dying there today. There's stuff happening today. Marriages are being fractured today. Folks are going into poverty today. They're having to choose today whether they're going to live in their house or live in their car today. Choices we don't have to make very much. We're going to pray every single week, right? We're going to earn this place, not just with our money and not just with our sweat. We're going to earn this place with the heart of our prayer. 
And so you'll hear more details, and feel free to come up and talk with me or anyone that's in leadership after the service. If you have specific questions, we'll be, we'll be happy to, to walk you through that. And as the weeks start to march on, you're going to hear more and more and more detail, and we'll be more and more um, transparent about where our exact particular needs are. But I have to start the conversation with you now, right, as early as possible. We felt like that was today. So thanks for being patient. With that announcement, it was a big announcement. Like I said, I, I adapted the sermon, so you're not going to be in here for another 45 minutes or anything like that. Um, but if you have your Bible, turn to Acts 24. Believe it or not, we are still marching through the book of Acts, right? We're already in the 24th chapter. Very cool chapter. Very cool little passage today. Acts 24. And if you're fast in the Bible, Romans 3 is going to be a, a really helpful chapter for us today. Very helpful. And listen, as you're turning there, if you are in Jesus, and I'm not assuming everyone in here is, all right? If you are in Jesus, and he is your Lord and your King, how are you feeling about your status in culture today? Because it's pretty provocative. And it's becoming more and more controversial, just as um, our, our, our uh, I guess our status has been shifting in the last 50, 70, even 100 years. We've become more and more of a provocative, odd people. How are you doing with that? I, I'll be honest. It can be kind of tough for me sometimes. How is it affecting your voice, your influence? Do you feel the temptation to not talk about certain details that the Bible talks about? Or do you feel tempted to kind of do a quick misdirect and get people to look at one aspect of Jesus and God, the Bible, the gospel, get them to look at this over here, hoping that they don't ask any questions about this weird, odd little thing over here, right? It's easy to do that. Tempted. I'm tempted. I mean, books are being written today. Churches are being planted today. Movements are being started by pastors and people who are working really hard with, with some sandpaper to, to smooth out all the rough edges that they see to be unpalatable to the average person, and they are succeeding. Churches are being started. People are growing all over that refuse to talk about the entire word of God and everything that it says because they are scared that it will affect their status. Their status will drop. People will look at them in a certain way. And so out of a, a fake pseudo-love, they only talk about easy things, hoping that that person doesn't run, hoping that that person likes them the whole time. I think you can see the spiraling and the digression of how our status is in our country, primarily by the school system, which sounds kind of odd. And I know it seems like I'm coming out swinging. This is not my attempt to get you to get all of your kids into homeschooling, right? I'm not taking shots at the school system. We could easily talk about the media, legislation. We could talk about a few things, but it's easy to see it with the school districts, especially in America. It's easy to see it, right? Because the school system in America, really the Western world, they're starting to jettison and get rid of old values and assimilate new values, right? Semi-ironic that we're sitting in a school today, isn't it? As we talk about this. But I would bet anyone in this room that in 15 years, this won't even be allowed. 15, 20 years, if anyone wants to take me up. And listen, if my memory is correct, in Oak Ridge, you already can't do this, right? I think it's right around the corner. I look at 1945 as a pretty pivotal year for us as a country, especially when it comes to schools. 
and the way that we handle school in America. Now, just to remind you what happened in 1945, the war was ending. World War II was ending, and we were becoming a new nation, a post-war nation, right? Now, culture was pretty much static up until that point, and then radically moved up to and including 1945. If you weren't a Christian, or at least behaved as a Christian, you might be called a communist. It was very anti-American to not at least look like a Christian, right? Things started changing very quickly, though. There's a quick schematic of how quick it was that the church became a plague and a pestilence to this country. 1948, just three years later, McCollum versus the Board of Education, the Supreme Court decided that schools can no longer offer voluntary, underline that, voluntary religious instruction during school hours on school property. This was their statement. The purpose of public schools is to promote unity. That release time program makes students aware of their religious differences. You cannot have students feeling different. So in the name of being homogenous, they killed volunteer programs forever. That's why you don't see them today. 1962, not even two decades later, Engel versus Vital, and this is the one that we all know about, the Supreme Court decided that there'd be no longer any prayer in school. What most people don't know about that, by the way, that all started in a little tiny suburb in Long Island, where the school district said, we would like all of our schools to go through this prayer every morning. And it was a one-sentence prayer where the kids basically asked God to bless their teachers and bless this country. I kid you not. One sentence. Bless these teachers. Bless this country. Five families disagreed. Lawsuit. The rest is history. 1962. One year later, the Supreme Court rules against public reading of Scripture in schools. Right? 21 years later, federal courts decide that no public display of a religious message on tax-funded school property can happen anymore. This means that you're not going to have any scriptures in the locker room for the guys, no nativity scenes, anything like that. That's gone as of that year. One year later, moments of silence on school property are now ruled as unconstitutional, right? One year. Right after that, non-denominational prayers at graduation ceremonies, which aren't even on school property half the time, Non-denominational prayers are now unconstitutional. Seven years after that, the judges rule at the federal level that the desire that some school districts have to teach intelligent design is now unconstitutional. You see how fast it's starting to slide and digress. It's getting quicker and quicker and quicker. And I just was reading the other day about how, I think a couple weeks ago, in Washington State, there was a football coach who's been doing this for years, after every single game, he'll walk out to the middle of the 50-yard line and bow his head and pray. Doesn't ask the team to do it. Doesn't ask other coaches to do it. It's just something he does as a conviction. Sometimes he might go Tebow, but most of the time he's just, he's just bowing his head and praying, right? Occasionally the opposing coach will come out and join him. Sometimes athletes will come out and join him, right? One parent complained, it's all gone now. Superintendent says this, your talks, talking to the coach, your talks with students must remain entirely secular to avoid alienation of any team member. Therefore, he cannot take a knee, he cannot bow his head in public after a game. Friends, we're sliding. We're sliding fast. In 70 years, we have gone from asking God to bless our teachers and bless our country to where we cannot bow our head in public anymore. Now, even in 2015, it's not good enough that we're sanitized from culture. You're starting to see not just a mere intolerance, but a hate 
towards the plague and the pestilence of the church. Right? Now the things you say are probably hateful, unloving. If you start quoting the Bible to the wrong people at the wrong time, it could be seen as hate speech, a crime against just civility in and of itself. And I think if Christianity were to disappear overnight, I think a lot of our culture, the Western American culture, I think a lot of our culture would be excited. They would think, good, the Christians are gone. Mankind can finally progress now that we've got the archaic Christians. I mean, Jesus has been such an anchor. His people have been such an anchor about us. Now we can finally move on and do things. You know, Bill Nye, the science guy. We all know who Bill Nye, the science guy is, right? Bow ties, YouTube, right? He was here just the other day. He was here on Thursday. Here's some of what he was saying then, and this is some of what he has said publicly. You can find it online anywhere. Creationism, and this is the idea that God has created the world, something we believe, right? Creationism is bad for us as a country. It raises a generation of dumb kids who can't think. <laughs> now, we're not only hurting our country, we're hurting the next generation. Are you catching this? It happens so slowly, we don't see it. It's happening. Friend, if you're a Christian, I got some news for you. You're a plague to this culture. Congratulations. Bill Nye does not like you very much. And by the way, one of the big problems I have with Bill Nye is not his bow tie. I give him props for the attempt on that. And I, and I, think, it's, I think it's cool that he knows how to work YouTube and upload a video. That's exciting, too. The problem I have with Bill Nye is that he's not like Dawkins. He's not like Hawking. They speak to intellectuals. They speak to college students on up on what they believe and what they don't believe. Bill Nye is talking to your kids. He speaks to a much younger generation. You're going to feel the effects of that eventually. I think, and I know I'm taking a lot of time to get to the text, right? I feel like it's important for this text, though, because this is a large effect on the voice of the church. It always started off, especially in the early 80s, early 70s, you start to see a silence from the people in the pews. Now you're starting to see a silence from the people in the pulpit when it comes to talking about hard truths. And I got to say, it's tempting. I get the temptation. It's tempting for me to look at a, at a gay couple that comes in and say, we'd love for you to sit here. I promise you will never feel uncomfortable. Come on in. I want them to be here. You're going to feel uncomfortable from time to time because we're going to speak God's word, right? It's tempting for me to talk to those who are sleeping together and say, hey, it's okay, as long as you're sincere. I mean, you're going to get married soon, right? Like, like within three weeks, three months. I mean, as long as that happens soon, then this is cool. This is all all right. It's tempting to do that. It's tempting to tell people that there's no judgment, that people aren't going to hell. Marriage is a slushy construct that we made up. It's tempting to do those things. Not that I have, but I can see the, I can see the temptation to say easy things, to up our status and get people to see us in a better way, to take off the hard, hard truths. And I think in this passage today, we're going to see two men in a courtroom one who is flattering in order to increase his status, and then Paul, who's going to say what the Word says regardless of what it does for his status. And I think it's going to lead us today. He is going to be tempted to do the same thing we're tempted to do, and it's to reduce and minimize the truth of the Word. Listen. You'll want to let this passage read you today if you have any desire to lead people to Jesus. We believe as a church that if you're a Christian, you're a missionary. That's the way it is. 
right? It's upon you. The Great Commission is on your shoulders. We should be making disciples who will make disciples. And implicit in that is, is evangelism. And if you have an evangelistic heart or want that, then this is going to be an important passage because one of the things that America in particular is struggling with is being hard with the hard truths, being honest with people. But Paul is living out loud on this. He's very loud on this, and we're going to hear that today. So look at chapter 24. This is God's word to us today. We're going to see Jesus much more clearly in the passages today. It says this in verse 1. After five days, the priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. That's really his name. Now, come on. What's the first thing that popped in your mind when I said that? Tertullus. I knew a dude in high school, we called him Turtle all the time. So now, man, I can't read this passage without thinking of that guy's face every time I read this. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Turtleus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly, for we have found this man a plague, plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him by examining him yourself. You will be able to find out from him about everything with which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. If we were to pause it just for a moment, we could look at a couple new players we have here that didn't fall over from the last text. Ananias, we know from last week, he's a wicked high priest. But we have Felix here, who's kind of his equivalent when it comes to Roman governors, right? Not a good governor, very brutal. I mean, the only thing cool about this guy is his name, right? Felix is a pretty cool name, but it also means happy. That's what the original meaning of his, but the, the, the irony is, is there's nothing happy in the, every going on around this guy. He's not happy. The people serving him are not happy. The people he is over are not happy. He is brutal. He's a murdering thief. He's brutal. He is so brutal that we're going to see later on in this text that he is pulled away from his assignment by none other than Nero himself, who was brutal. The reason Nero pulled him out is because he was too brutal of a ruler. So he's too brutal for even Nero himself. That's who this guy is. Not even good at his job. The only reason he even got this job is because he had a brother, right, who kind of opened up a door for him, a good, kindly brother who kind of got him a job. We all know that guy, right? Guy who, who doesn't really deserve to have the job he has. He just knew someone that knew someone, and there he is. He's kind of cruddy at it. That's who we have here. It's Felix. We always have Turtleus as well. Turtleus is a professional speaker. He is a professional lawyer, a spokesman, a hired gun, and as we can see in this passage, he's a professional flatterer. He's telling lies. All of the things he said are lies. If you look, even the Jews that hired him, listening to the things he's saying, they know that none of this is true. He didn't, he didn't make things easier for them. He's not a reformer. He didn't bring peace all he's doing is making things more difficult for the Jews, so bad that it ended up pulling him away. <laughs> it's okay. It's all right. What I guess I want you to see in this is we have one guy that's flattering. He's saying things that aren't true. He's saying the easy things to hear. 
He's filling this guy's head with flattery. For why? So his status can increase. So whatever he says after this is weighed heavily. Are we not tempted to do the same thing? I'm tempted to be turtleless. I think I find a lot of pastors that are, Christians in general, who will say things that are untrue in order to gain something, or at least increase how they look in someone else's eyes. Now, after Tertullus flatters Felix, he begins to throw mud at Paul. We see a lot of accusations. We see a lot of mudslinging. He's being called a plague, a ringleader, um, one who stirs up riots, one who profanes the temple. We're seeing a lot compacted down into just a good couple sentences. And so this is how Paul responds. Verse 10. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you've been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or storing up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. What he's saying is this. I've been here for five days. I only showed up in Jerusalem 12 days ago. That's seven days. Do the math. That's not enough time to stir up anything. Half the time I've even been in this area, I've been with you. You know that can't be true. Who stirs up a riot in seven days? especially if you come in and you're a nobody. Verse 13, Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. He's basically saying, Felix, listen, The stuff that I'm being accused of saying, these guys believe. Let me let you in on a little secret. We all believe in the resurrection of the living and the dead. Verse 16, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards God, both God and man. Now after several years, I I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. And while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia... They ought to be here before you to make an accusation should they have anything against me. What he's saying there is, hey, listen, not only do you not have any proof, but even the guys that had the original rub with me, they're not here. Let me tell you why. Because they know it's silly. They're not even here. Verse 20, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they have found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day, which they believe to. Verse 22, but Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, we'll find out why here in a minute, put them off, saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So he's getting an ankle monitor right here, right? They're sending him to house arrest. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Jesus Christ. Now, Drusilla, new player in our story right now, she was a Jewish teenager. She was about 16 during the time that some say she could be even up to 19, but she's a teenager, right? And she herself had an accurate knowledge of the way or the church. Most believe this is how Felix did. Felix knew what the church was about because he found out from his wife. The reason being is because her dad is the one that killed James the Apostle. Her great uncle is the one that killed John the Baptist. 
Her great-grandfather is the one that tried to kill Jesus and in the process killed a bunch of little kids, so she knew about the way. She watched her family tangle with the church for a couple generations at least. Another interesting fact about Drusilla is that she's beautiful. I mean, I looked at several ancient historians on the person of Drusilla. All of them remarked about how beautiful she was. Josephus said she did indeed exceed all other women in beauty. Here's why that's important. Felix saw her when she was 16, and he had to have her. Problem was that she was already married. So Felix hires a magician. This is true. I'm not making this up. He hires a magician from Cyprus to come on in and to convince and to kind of draw Drusilla away from her present marriage to marry Felix instead, right? And this is, this is what he said. This is what he told her, that if she would not refuse Felix, he would make her a happy woman because, after all, his name means happy, right? Can't write that. Sounds like a dumb teenage pickup line anyway, doesn't it? She totally fell for it. I mean, when we're teenagers, we text and say the dumbest things to pick up a girl or whatever. That's all you're looking at right here. It's crazy. My name is Happy. Know what I mean? You leave leave that big lunk and you come and marry me, your life is going to be better. So she buys it. They get married. If you ever find yourself on Jeopardy, another interesting fact about Drusilla is that she died at Pompeii whenever Vesuvius erupted. She was one of the most popular and famous people at the time. Now, Pompeii was a resort town back then, right? That's where you'd go if you'd want a vacation. So she went there with her son. There was, uh, I think, Pliny the, the Lesser. I think he was also there. But there was only a couple important famous people that died, and she was one of them. Now, listen, they were intrigued. They wanted to be entertained long before Downton Abbey and Market Square and all the things that we do to entertain ourselves now. So they do the natural thing, and then they they jailbreak someone out of the prison and bring them into their living room, and they ask him questions. And that's what happens with Paul. Verse 25, and Paul, he, and as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When the two years had elapsed, can you believe that? This happened for two years. What a drain. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Okay, that word alarm means terrified in the original language. Paul's gospel preaching left Felix terrified, and it should have. Because when it's preached well, it can be terrifying. It can be terrifying. You tell somebody, this is what your sins have done. First of all, you're a sinner. This is what your sins have done, and this is how it postures you before God. That's terrifying news. If it's anything less than terrifying, you've done it wrong. You've proposed it wrong. You've retold it wrong. It's terrifying. And this is his sermon. I mean, this is his sermon points, his three points. Righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. You notice these are hard truths? This is not diet Bible. This is not the prosperity gospel he's preaching. What a good time for the prosperity gospel, by the way, if you want to get out of trouble. Lots of ways he could have gone about doing this. And he brings the hardest stuff out. It's amazing to me. Let's look at it. Let's look at these points real quickly. Righteousness. Mankind has to do something about yesterday's sin. 
So as we look at how Jesus' people tell the hard truth, this is what Paul does. Mankind must do something about yesterday's sin, righteousness. In 1973, there was this guy, his name was Carl Menninger, and he wrote a book that called What About Sin, or What Became of Sin, I believe is the proper title. And in this book, he argues that the notion of sin has disappeared. But not only that, the word sin has disappeared when we come to talk about people. He says what you have instead are mistakes, weaknesses, genetic failures and tendencies, faults, even errors, but not sin. Not sin. People aren't sinners. They're immature. They're underprivileged, sick, frightened. We're victims, not aggressors. So in other words, what makes us unrighteous is never really our fault. And listen, if it's not your fault, then you're not responsible. That's what culture would have us believe. Here's the crushing bad news of the gospel. You are responsible. I am responsible. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. That's true. But we choose sin. You might have a a, a proclivity You might have a leaning towards some sin that the guy next to you does not. That might be true. You might have a certain way of looking at humanity that you've had ever since you were born. That might be true, but you choose to sin. We are guilty. We are culpable in the fact that justice is coming towards us. This is super important for us. The bad news is that we are responsible. The holy God demands righteousness. All we can do is deliver unrighteousness, even on your best day. You have enough bad things on your best day to condemn you forever. You see how it's getting worse? This bad news is getting worse and worse. It's crushing. But as terrifying as the bad news is, we have some terrifyingly good news. The good news is this. The same holy God that that demands righteousness is the same holy God that provides his own righteousness. What I mean by that is he, he sees that we have a big, heavy debt, and he's demanding payment, but he's the one writing the check. He's demanding perfect righteousness, and he provides it himself. That's pretty good news when you really get to look at it. Look at Romans 3 if you're turned there. Paul says this, the first part we've all heard a million times, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Pause. You are sinners. You're culpable. You're guilty. You're guilty and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward, not man. We did not put forward our best foot. God put forward his best foot, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show whose righteousness, ours or God's? God's, it says, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Good news. God provides his own righteousness. This means that he's contributed so you can't. You can't contribute. That's good news, too. There's nothing more to pay. That's great news. If you could still pay and you could still contribute, then the good news isn't good anymore. It's more bad news, more laws, more rules, more things you have to do. That's just more crushing bad news. But God has provided us with the righteousness that he demands. That's good for us. You see, Paul was telling Felix and Drusilla that they're not just underprivileged, misunderstood, and weak. They're sinners. That was terrifying for them. Can you see why that would frighten them, alarm them. 
Here's a quick application if you are, in fact, a missionary to this city. You cannot do a good job with the gospel if you neglect the notion and the word of sin. You can't do it. See, the gospel's terrifyingly good, but not unless first it's terrifyingly bad for people. If they don't understand how guilty they are, then they'll never understand how beautiful the cross is. If you don't understand how guilty you are, then the cross is just dumb, extracurricular, and a waste of a perfectly good life. But if you see how sinful you really are and how guilty you are, then the cross becomes terrifyingly good news. I think some of us struggle, and I've been there if you were there now, struggle seeing that God is as fascinating as others say he is. We look and we see people write about it, sing about it, talk about it, cry about it, give deep of everything that they make. They're so excited about how beautiful and fascinating Jesus is, and we just don't really get what the big deal is. We like him, right? I mean, he's, he's good. I like Jesus, but I'm not like that guy. He's like sobbing all over the place. She won't shut up about Jesus, and I'm like, not, not there, right? You might. I'm not saying this is it for you. You might have a very high view of your righteousness and therefore a very low view of what the gospel has done for you. If you want to be fascinated with Jesus, you need to raise the value of how you see what God has done by having a proper low view of how righteous you were. You have to flip it. You have to understand how unrighteous you were before you see how valuable his righteousness was and is. And culture in general is going to want us to minimize the sin of this city to make it more palatable. And I, again, it's tempting, isn't it? It's tempting. The second point in Paul's sermon, it deals with self-control. Mankind must do something about today's temptations, not just yesterday's sins, but today's temptations. You know, man can control just about anything but himself. We can control rivers and lakes and build dams, and we can't even control our mouth or our eyes. And Felix and Drusilla, they're a great example of this right here. They pretty much show us what it looks like to have a lack of self-control. But listen, we're at a place in time now. Just look at the news today when you get home. Culture has found a time now where it's easy to say control self. Why would anyone control self? Sounds kind of unhealthy to me. Because if you're controlling self, that means you're not sincere to your own self and your emotions and how you feel. Control self. Hey, listen, if you want it and you love it and you're sincere, then let it out. Let that urge live. Let it come out. Why would you control self? This is why whenever you see people come out of the closet in a public way about their sexual views, or you see them come out of the closet about really anything in life, what's one classic statement you always hear them say? I'm just being true to myself. I'm finally comfortable because I'm being sincere to myself. I'm being honest with myself. I'm being true to myself. What they're really saying is, is I'm abandoning and forfeiting self-control. It's the same exact thing. I'm giving up self-control. I'm not putting that down anymore. And I'm going to live in this way, and now I finally feel like I'm being sincere to myself. So being sincere to how you feel is now virtuous, whereas having self-control is unhealthy. Have you seen how it's flopped? It's flopped. Telling the flesh no is unfaithful to our culture's values, but telling yourself no is very valuable when it comes to biblical values. Very, very good. And God has made it possible for us to change and live by the Spirit rather than the flesh. You don't have to live by the flesh. That's one of the beautiful parts of the gospel. You can say no to the flesh. Because Jesus said no to the flesh, we are able to say no to the flesh. 
right? If you have a hard time saying no to the flesh and putting it down, and you just let it out anytime you want, if you have a hard time with that, you're still living according to the old person. The Holy Spirit's not really doing a very active work in you. But God does allow us to live differently by the power of the Holy Spirit. It says this in 1 Peter. Don't turn there. Stay where you're at. But in 1 Peter 4, he says this, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, which in Jesus was empowered by the Holy Spirit. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. You see, Paul's addressing this, or Peter rather, is addressing this head on. For that time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry, all the things that happen when you let self come out in sincerity to yourself. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they will malign you. You're being unhealthy to yourself and you're teaching your kids to be unhealthy too. Gosh, our society would be so much better off without you as a plague, stupid Christians. I mean, Peter's nailing it. He's prophesying over us right now. Verse 5, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And that leads us to Paul's third point. There is a judgment to come. Mankind must do something about tomorrow's judgment. Not just yesterday's sins, not just today's temptations, but tomorrow's judgment. And it all comes down to whose righteousness you will claim. It will either be yours or it will be Jesus's, but you will be in a place where you will have to cling to one of those righteousnesses. Now, if it's yours, you've got a pretty firm problem, right? Because you're going to be judged strictly. It's a strict judgment of even your thoughts, even like those corny thoughts that you have, like right before you go to bed or right when you wake up, you know what I'm saying? Where you think something, but it's not like really you, it's like half asleep you and half awake you, you're even guilty for those. Yes, you are not a victim. You'll be held accountable even for those. Even when you're sick, right, or they inject you with whatever thing to make you, you know, what do they call it, anesthetic, and you say corny things, you'll be held accountable for that too. Anything, your motives. If you look at a woman or a guy just for one fleeting second, that's enough to send you away. That is what happens when you claim your original righteousness is attached to yourself, or you can claim Jesus's. Those are your choices. Now, Jesus has a different righteousness because it was a perfectly lived life. And when you cling to the righteousness that Jesus laid forth before us, God says something very beautiful to you and me whenever we see him, and we will see him. He says, well done, my good and faithful servant, in whom I am well pleased. And if that sounds familiar, that's because that's what he said to Jesus after he was baptized. A perfectly lived life. It's been overlaid on top of your miserably lived life and my miserably lived life. Even if you sin as you get in the car after this service, you will see God and he will say, well done, my faithful servant. Why? Because you're such a good person, a good Christian? No, but Jesus was. Jesus was. Do you see how terrifyingly beautiful the gospel is? It's terrifying. It's gorgeous. The heavy message that he had is judgment is coming. And it is strict. And what did Felix do? He procrastinated. He punted the ball deep. I will call for you when it's convenient. Right now, it doesn't feel very convenient. You must go away. Take your ankle monitor with you and your heavy sermon, because I cannot stand this. Some of you have been flirting with a while, just for a while, 
on whether you should or should not submit your life to Jesus. Saying things in your mind like, not today, maybe next time. Friend, today is the day. Someday is no day. Someday in the future, that just means no day in the future. Think about this. Drusilla partying with her friends at the day spa all day with her son, living life, and then a volcano is on top of her by the end of the day. Judgment comes. Judgment comes. Just as a quick missional application, I think a lot of us are afraid to speak to this in this part of the country because when we speak to this in this part of the country, it sounds too much like hell, fire, and brimstone. Whatever that means, I'm still not sure. But I know that when I talk to people and they're looking for a church, one question, a precondition is, you're not one of those churches, right, that preaches about hell, fire, and brimstone? And I say, I've never really said the word brimstone from the pulpit before, but we do believe in judgment. We believe in judgment. Don't be afraid of that. Don't be afraid. Don't, don't clean that off of what God is, is putting before us in the Bible out of fear of what they will think about you. You're not old-fashioned. You're being biblical. 2 Timothy. In fact, go ahead and stand with me. We're going to read this. Let me read it to you. Just as a charge. This is more of a charge than anything. Paul tells Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. He's not talking about bringing a diet Bible. He's not talking about bringing some low-calorie version of what God has said, but all of it in its entirety. Verse 3, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. As Felix is saying, away from me. It's not convenient for me. Bring back Turtleus. He was telling me stuff I wanted to hear. You're bugging me. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Because I'm going to let the self out. Who wants to control self? Tell me something, pastor. Tell me something, Christian, that allows me to let the self come out anytime I want. But don't tell me self-control. The Bible's brilliant how it speaks to today, isn't it? And I will turn away from listening to the truth, or and will turn away from listening to the truth, and wander off into myths. As for you, church, legacy, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Some of you are about to give up your ministry towards some people in the city because it doesn't feel like it's working. They keep procrastinating. It doesn't seem like they're buying it, right? You're tempted to make it easier for them to take the hard edges off, to make it more palatable. Don't do it. Don't do it. Be patient. Preach the word. At some point, friend, you're going to need to, we're all going to need to embrace the title plague, a pestilence to this culture. It's already happening. It's already happening. You will be seen as dangerous. It sounds laughable now, doesn't it? Dangerous. Gosh, I drove here in a minivan. I can't be dangerous for anyone. Our view on gay marriage as a church, which has the underpinnings of biblical foundation, is going to be seen as dangerous and hateful. Our view on sin, ignorant, ancient. Our view on immorality and addiction is going to be seen as unhealthy and insincere to yourself. Our view on God creating creation is dumb and hurting our kids, holding our nation back. It's happening. The temptation you will always have is to remove the hard edges and just preach it easy. 
preach it easy. Don't look at this over here. Just look at this, the easy stuff to look at. And then just to finish, some of you, I feel like you've been terrified and alarmed from time to time because you have heard some terrifyingly bad news. And, and man, by God's grace, you've heard some terrifyingly good news today as well. Some good news of what God has done. Hopefully, by God's grace, something has occurred in you that occurred in me in one day when I looked at the blood on my hands, saw myself as culpable, and said, oh my God, what have I done? Terrifyingly bad. But then I looked up and I said, oh my God, what have you done? Terrifyingly good. And new life begins. And that's what we are praying for today for you. That it's not go away until it's more convenient, but it is right now in this moment that you leave an old life where you let the flesh do whatever it wants and you live a life submitted to a new king, not you, but another king turning from the life of not just sinning every now and then, but of being a sinner and accepting God's grace in your life to change you from here and forevermore until he comes back and collects us as a family one day. That is our prayer. Because Vesuvius will come. Judgment is upon us. I don't know what it will look like, but it's here. So submit yourself. Let me pray for you. Father, you're very good to us. You're terrifyingly good to us. Lord, let us not be a church that is paralyzed at telling people bad news. It is only on the foundation of the very bad news that good news even makes sense. Lord, we repent at looking at your cross as tiny and looking at our own personal righteousness as big. Lord, to minimize your love and the depth of your grace for us, we repent. Lord, I repent, even as a pastor, from, from feeling even the urge, even the temptation to tell people something easy so that they don't leave, to tell them something very, very easy so maybe they'll give Christianity a, a, another shot. Lord, help me be kind and help me be gracious and loving, but Lord, help me be honest Help us as a church be honest. Lord, we will be a missionary church. That is, our, that is our goal, is to be a church of disciples making disciples in some very tough neighborhoods. Lord, where we're going to be tempted every day, Fourth and Gill, we'll be tempted to rub the hard edges off. Day one, we'll be tempted to do that. Mechanicsville, we'll be tempted to rub the hard edges off. The UT campus, will be very tempted to knock off a, a, a hard truth here and a hard truth there. But Lord, Lord, help our hearts that we could just preach the word and let you do the rest. You do the heavy lifting. God, only you can change a heart. We can't change hearts. You're the God of the details. Help us be loving, patient, but help us be honest. And Lord, I know that there are those in the church right now that you are invading and ambushing their hearts. Lord, you're requiring great righteousness from them, but even now in this moment, you're showing them that you've provided it. You've given it to them. You've already written the check. Lord, I pray that there's deep repentance today. Deep repentance. That people will call you Lord. That unlike Felix, unlike Drusilla, new life begins today. We love you, Jesus. We love you. We celebrate, we sing, we take communion, we give, we spend these moments in celebration of you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.